I'm Don Daler, and this is 2020 in Touch. On Friday, we brought you a murder mystery we've been following for years. An Illinois woman named Julie Ray Harper was serving a 65-year sentence for stabbing to death her 10-year-old son as he lay sleeping. From the very beginning, she insisted she was innocent and that she, in fact, had struggled with the intruder who killed her son. After her story aired on 2020, Julie Ray Harper got a new trial and a second chance to prove she was not the killer. That's where Lynn Scherer picks up the story. It is summer 2006. In the small town of Carlisle, Illinois, on what would have been Joel Kirkpatrick's 19th birthday, his mother sits in the hushed courtroom facing first-degree murder charges for the second time for killing her only child. How difficult was it for you to be in court knowing it was his actual birthday? He was right there with me. Did you consider the possibility that you would be found guilty again and have to go back to prison? Did you think it could happen again? I knew it could. But could she have imagined that the person who might save her was a serial killer on death row in Texas? All right. Very, very excited about these last two episodes. We have lots of fun stuff going on. First of all, we have a guest. Yes, we do. That made an impromptu. Um, <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> into our podcast, which was awesome. Best friend, Susan. Uh-huh. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> and then, of course, Mom. But Hello. Oh, no. Here comes the same. we got, you know, a couple left here. Please let me do at least one daughter one next time. That's fine. One? I mind one daughter. Okay. Okay, yes. how about three? No, I give you All right, one see, daughter. It's you men. gave her an inch and she took a mile. <laughs> okay, so mom knows it's totally inappropriate to make a dad joke if you're not a dad. It's a faux pas. You know, I just, I'm on. I'm with. Thank you, on you this best one. friend. I've, we gotta stick together. We gotta stick together on that one because I'm sure you'll get a jab today. <laughs> That's okay. I love her saying some are a little funnier than others. So uh, we always, you know, well, let me introduce myself. I'm Sherry. This is Outline of a Murder. And uh, we always end our seasons, which are for the purpose of helping people with um, usually a serial killer. And um, we do this because, you know, no matter what, you know, tips and self-awareness and, you know, your uh, spatial awareness when you're out and about, is important sometimes there's just killers that it doesn't matter uh what you do mm-hmm. yeah but in this case there's actually uh part of the story it'll be a part one and part two where we can give some tips because what happened was completely avoidable uh we don't have our bartender i couldn't find the mango so we're just having our coffee and our water yep and then we'll finish off with a wine that with a wine Stephen wants us yep. to try um, and I got my coffee. Of course. Let me get. Let me get a drink. Okay. <laughs> oh my lord! <laughs> I That's love ridiculous. It. Now they know how good it is. <laughs> <laughs> now they know how good the coffee mm-hmm. is. But I want to um, dedicate this last episode, actually the entire season, to my dad. Oh yeah. Who passed away in July, and my love for true crime started with him. I'd go with him on the road. And I'd read, you know, a true crime book, or he might read a true crime book, and then we would discuss. Mm-hmm. But also, he taught me everything um, as far as 
being aware of my surroundings, Safety. what to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to dedicate it to him. Also, he uh, was a Marine. And so if any of our listeners are in the Marine Corps or were, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine. Right. All right. So this one, this serial killer is Tommy Sells. Don't recognize the name yet. Okay. And by the way, she doesn't tell me what the cases are till we're doing them. Mm-hmm. So some of them are a surprise for me. And I watch a lot of true crime. In the background on me choosing this serial killer is I actually never wanted to do him as a serial killer because he's, I mean, all serial killers are disgusting. But to me, he's just like a slasher. Uh, he doesn't, and this is going to sound weird, but if you're a true crimer, then you understand. There's no intelligence behind his, you know, oh. crimes. He he just, you know, was an opportunist. He, you know, I mean, just yeah. He, sloppy. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, and that's what got him caught. No intent. Just, I'm going to just do I'm gonna it. I'm going to kill yeah, and, you know, I mean, Ted Bundy at least put a little bit of thought into how he got his victims. Israel Keyes was very intelligent. Right. Uh, BTK actually had a low IQ, but he was fascinating because he was the first one to prove that serial killers can stop. I know. That's just still amazing to me. Yeah. And uh, so with this guy, I... But there's some twists that caught my attention. I had actually already picked out all of our cases, and I was still trying to figure out the serial killer one. And then I saw an episode of this lady right here. Right. Her name's Julie Ray. And she's a divorced single mom. And she was actually enjoying a quiet evening home with her son, Joel Kirk- Kirkpatrick. And so that's little Joel right there. And Aww. I've got a lot of photos. So I'm going to have to go back and forth and hopefully not pick the... The wrong ones. And the photos are on our site. Mm-hmm. I'll have all those of, on our of site. Murder. Outlineofamurder.com uh, or outlineofamurderpodcast.com. And um, and here's another picture of little Joel. Oh, how old is he? He, let's see. I don't know if I have his age, but I think he was maybe eight or nine. He was a neat little boy. Now, they lived in Lawrenceville, Illinois. And she was a Ph.D. student at uh, the Indiana University, and it was for psychology, I believe. Oh. And she had divorced from her former cop husband, Lynn, three years before, and it was bitter. It was a very bitter uh, divorce. They had married in their teens, and then Joel was born 11 months later. And after the divorce, her ex-husband was given what's called residential uh, custody because he had remarried. Uh, so they felt it was a more stable home. And oh, then, no. Yeah, which is How rare. How long after? Uh, they had only been married for three years. No, wait. I'm not sure how long they'd been married, but the before the incident occurred, they had been divorced at that point for three years. So the ex-husband had the residential custody, oh. and then Julie had Joel on the weekends. Oh. And he was an intelligent, sweet little boy. Everybody loved him. Uh, he was described as being all always friendly. And then his grandpa, which would be Julie's dad, said he was always very solicitous solicitous toward everyone around him, and he wanted everyone to be happy. Aww, and you can tell how by happy his little is. face. Yeah. And uh, both parents just absolutely adored him. And let me see if I can find... I thought I had a picture of him and Joel. I guess... Or her and Joel. I guess I don't. Let me see if they're on another one. Nope. I guess I don't have it. But anyway, so he was the love of their life. They absolutely adored uh, him. 
Yeah, I guess I don't. And that's the mother. That's the mother. Okay. So Lawrenceville is a county seat of Lawrence County, Illinois. It's a small town with a population of just a little over 4,000. So most of our cases have been in small towns, right. which again, people are like bedroom community, which I don't even know what the heck that means. I don't either. You know, like bedroom community, like are you guys swingers or something? Right. I mean, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a great place to raise a family. And, you know, most people don't think bad things happen in small towns, but they do. Anywhere. And you want to lock your doors. You want to be aware of your surroundings, no matter where you are, small town or not. Now, all hell broke loose October 1997 in Julie's home in her world. So in the early morning hours, October 13th, Julie was asleep when she heard Joel scream. She darted across the hallway to his room to check on him, but she didn't see him in his bed. And uh, she did see, however, a masked intruder in his room. So she went after him. She chased him through the house. And she actually knew uh, she had a black belt in Taekwondo. Oh, good for her. So he, like, brushed past her to try to get away. She pursues him, and the intruder actually broke through a window into her backyard and they fought there so she ran out after him and they scuffled outside and then he took her head and hit it real hard into the ground and it dazed her so she couldn't continue to fight and he then uh, continued towards some woods that were in the back of the house and also beyond those woods was a, a main interstate a highway so he continues towards the woods, and then he removes his ski mask once he gets close to those. Uh, she saw him, but she didn't get a good look of him. So at that point, she doesn't know where her son is. You know, I mean, she's awoken from a dead sleep. There's a man in her house with the mask on. She's in the fight. She's dazed and confused. So she runs over to the neighbor's home, and this is 430, and she's screaming, Joel's gone. So at this point... Oh, she thought he took her took the son well she didn't see her son with him either oh because she said joel's gone yeah so she what she thought is he must have taken joel and she didn't connect well why would he still be in the house you know so she had no idea she just knows her son is not in bed there's a stranger that's in her home and her she doesn't know where he went and it's traumatic so she's not thinking yeah She's barefoot. She's wearing only a t-shirt and her underwear. She was frantic. It was hard to understand her. So the neighbor actually had to bear hug her to calm her down. So put her in a bear hug to calm her down. And then the police were called and they arrived on scene. The police started searching the house. And at this point, everyone's thinking that Joel was kidnapped. When officers searched Joel's room, they found the little boy Uh, stabbed 12 times, twice through his aorta, lying between his empty bed and a nearby wall. So, like, if this was the bed and this was the wall, he was right there. So she's not going to see him between the bed and the wall because the intruder was in this area, like, at the the foot of the bed. And so she's not going to know he's there. That he's there. She's on that intruder trying to get him to stop and get him subdued so she can find out where her kid is. When Julie heard that her son was dead, she began screaming in agony. She was taken to the hospital. Her wounds were treated. She had a black eye, uh, rug burns on her knees, because he, you know, dragged her. Right. Uh, let me. So this is her right here after. So you can see the black eye, and then she's got. 
the rug burns on her knees right there. And let's see if there's, I'm showing pictures. I'll have this link on the website. Oh, but that's what her that. eye looks like. And that's fresh. You know, usually yeah. over time they start looking a little bit Purple worse. Purple and, yep. And let's see if there's any other pictures of her wounds. No. You know, it was good that she could fight him off mm-hmm. like she did. But she's tiny. Yeah. Wonder if he was tiny. She's tiny. So, uh, yeah, he the intruder was definitely small. But obviously being a man, he's going to be a little bit bigger than her anyway even if he's small. And so she fought. She fought really hard. But uh, let's see. She had a wound that was on her right arm that required stitches. She had scratches and abrasions on her head, both shoulders, and the tops of her feet. So I think what happened is he he was dragging her. Like she was holding on. And he was trying to... And he was dragging her and her feet got those scratches on the top. So... Now, in her current state, in spite of all of her wounds, the cops immediately think she's the one that did it. Of course they did. That She just beat herself up and dragged her feet across the grass. I guess. So I mean, stupid. I, and, so I, I can see a little bit of why they might have to look at her. Number one, she's the only one in the right. house with her kid. But her wounds didn't show that, that, that it was her. I know. That I mean, right there, you got to take into account. There were no obvious signs of forced entry either. Um, Julie couldn't remember if she had locked the back door. That was her normal custom. She would do that at night, but she can't remember if she did, which is, I mean, I can understand. Uh, but you and, know, in the 70s, not a lot of people did. Well, this was the 90s. Oh, it was the 90s. Yeah. Well, Where would I get the 70s? I have no idea. Hmm. And then on top of that, um, who comes into a house and kills a little kid randomly? Like that. that's what really kind of... They're like, that, that doesn't happen. And again, you're, you know, in a small town of 4,000, what, plus people. Right. So they're like, no, this, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And left her alive. And yep. left her alive. So I could see that they would have to look at her. But again, the wounds would make me question it, that she did it. She had no criminal background. She had no history of mental illness. And then her actions the hours before did not suggest that she planned on killing her son. Joel and uh, she had spent a quiet evening visiting the home of her best friend, Trina, or Trina, and her kids, and the women scrapbooked while the children played. Oh. But it also didn't help her case that the murder weapon was a steak knife from her own kitchen. So again, oh. what killer goes into a random house at night and gets in, how did they get in and then uses a steak knife from the victim's, you know, mom's kitchen and then goes straight for the son? If they're going to kill someone, they usually bring their own weapons. Right. And then like the case we watched last night, what got the the wife was because you would have had to have dug around in a junk drawer to find a weapon, yes. not knowing the weapon would be there and then throw it away in your shrubs. And there was too much stuff in it for the gun to fit. Right. I mean, yeah, to me, that that's one of, of those, you know, cases where you're like, come on, Karen, can't you figure out that, you know. They always think they're smarter, though. That's just Criminals are just dumb. <laughs> it insults my true crime intelligence. Right. But anyway, so because of their immediate suspicions, they did not um, collect evidence very well. Uh, her ex-husband didn't buy it. He felt that Julie decided, if I can't have them, neither can you. 
Oh, wow. The fact that he was an ex-cop added weight to his suspicions. They probably believed everything he said. Yep. Yep. And then sloppy police work from that time on. They didn't dust Joel's room. They didn't dust the block where the knife came from for Prince. They didn't preserve critical trace evidence on Joel's bedspread. Nothing. Don't tell me they arrested her. Yep. So instead, they just looked at Julie and any remnants of blood that she might have tried to wash away. They dug up her septic uh, tank. They inspected her shower and sink drains. They examined the clothes that were in her washing machine. They sprayed luminol around the house and found absolutely nothing. The only blood was a tiny amount on her t-shirt, and it was so tiny that if Julie had killed her son, it begged logic. I mean, it was just this tiny, teeny, teeny, teeny little blood spot on her t-shirt. She would have been covered in blood because he got the aorta. Yeah, which I think spurts, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so the crime scene was brutal and violent, and in Joel's room, blood was everywhere. They did all of that except dust for prints in his room, the things you should do in the first place. Yeah, because she was guilty. That is it. Once they thought she was guilty, that was it. You know, they they can take evidence, and someone told me this in law enforcement, and they can twist it and turn it to however they want to. Which is not good police no, work. No, it is not good police work. You have to work. keep an open mind. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And, I mean, I can see how it happens. You know, it's like with Brian Laundry, I knew he committed suicide yep. immediately. With uh, Murdaugh, I knew that he killed yep. his uh, son and wife. And everybody's <laughs> like, well, we don't know that. No, we do. Because you he do. was an idiot and tried to make it look like he was going to be murdered to take the heat off of him. His actions just... Yeah, they, they line up. And yeah. then when you see patterns of crimes, you know, after a while, you're like, yeah, yep. that person did it. So I could see how maybe experience or knowledge of crime would make people immediately go to her. But the wounds would cause me to pause because it doesn't make sense. And then the fact that she had such a tiny spot of blood on her T-shirt, there's no way that I, I could be confident that she was a killer. And besides, how can you explain all her wounds? For her to do them herself. You can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's just crazy. Now, Julie couldn't be alone after her son's death. She was terrified of the dark. She rarely slept. And she couldn't live in the house either. She stayed in an apartment an hour and a half away in Bloomington, uh, Indiana. Been there. And then she had a rotation <coughs> of friends that stayed with her around the clock. To get any sleep at all, she had to have one friend... On one side, the other friend on the other side of her with the lights on. That's terrible. She also got a German shepherd who went everywhere with her. And she did manage to hold down a teaching position at the university, but she started having panic attacks and debilitating anxiety. And then, to top that off, investigators would show up unannounced at her home and workplace, adding to the anxiety. Yeah, because, you know, once, once police get involved and you see them at where you work, they, they think you're guilty. Mm-hmm. And then if you're not proven guilty, it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. It has ruined your life. Oh, yeah. Because nobody's going to believe you anyway, even if you're proven innocent. Yeah. So here you have your only child slaughtered in his bedroom. You got the trauma of that, the trauma of fighting off the intruder. Is he going to come back? Is he going to kill me? You've got your ex-husband, we're as bitter anyway, attacking you and saying that you did it. You've got um, police just showing up whenever. So, you you know, are you ever safe? Uh, and, and that's a tactic to intimidate and rattle yeah, the yeah. suspect. But to me, the worst part would be the fact that 
you know you did not do it. And the police are looking at the wrong person. And no matter what you say or do, you cannot convince them Mm -hmm. that someone else did this crime. So the killer is never going to be caught. Like, that would be my idea. It would be so helpless and powerless. You can't prove that you didn't do it. Yeah. But it is really poopy police work. Mm Mm-hmm. The, the wound typical, itself should tell you, and the going through the door, the you know, she would have, yeah, she would have, or the window, she would have had cut. I mean, mm-hmm. wow. Well, I don't know if she went through the window. The the killer yeah, he did. did but I'm saying mm-hmm. that's logical. If she would have went through that window, she would have had cuts. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The police, it's just poopy police work. And the only defense I can have of him is it's a small town, and who, again, would think that a complete stranger would come into a random house in the middle of the night with no weapon and go straight for the kid's bedroom? But on the flip side... The evidence. Right. You know, looking at evidence, doing the... Not your opinions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fingerprints, et cetera, yeah. Well, in 2000, three years later, the Illinois State's Attorney's Appellate Prosecutor's Office, an office that routinely handles complex prosecutions for rural areas, took the case to a grand jury, and they were given an indictment to arrest Julie Ree for the murder of her 10-year-old son on the eve of the third anniversary of his death. It's terrible. They didn't have any eyewitnesses. They had little forensic evidence and no motive. All they had was bloodstain pattern analysis. Now, we've all heard that. Yeah. Like that one oriental doctor that mm-hmm. he's in a lot of the tri- uh, trials and he'll give yes, testimony. Yes, Dr. Lee. Yes. Okay, so blood stain, blood stain, blood stain <laughs> pattern analysis is the belief that drops, spatters, and trails of blood tell the story of the crime and that you can actually reverse engineer and reconstruct the crime using bloodstained patterns. And I've seen this in several shows. Mm-hmm. It's very helpful in many cases, but it's not as science. So it's very subjective and it's open to interpretation. I wonder why it took three years. Well, they had to. If they thought she was so case. guilty. They, it was, they had nothing but a I tiny know. little blood stain. And they still had nothing after three years. Not really. So they they basically, and here's where the problem happens. You can have, you know, analysis or analysts that they will analyze it and they will add their own biases or their own opinions. Mm -hmm. To me, I think if you're going to have someone come in and analyze the bloodstain patterns, they don't even need to know about the case. Exactly. They don't need to know about the potential, you know, killer they don't need to know much about the victim except where the body was that's it to be biased so that way you don't know anything that's going on about the crime you just Mm -hmm. walk into the scene you look at the evidence and then you come to your conclusions then later you can learn about whatever but at the time if you know anything about Mm -hmm. what happened guess what you're gonna look at this case and think that she's guilty yeah because it's going to be in your mind right so the other problem with bloodstain pattern analysis is the jury doesn't always understand when a, quote, expert is overstating things or interpreting things beyond what can be tested or replicated. 
So just the words, and this is what they'll say, this is what the physical evidence shows, carries a tremendous amount of weight because jurors want evidence. They're very uncomfortable making decisions without it. So when you say the words physical evidence, that like adds tons Mm -hmm. of weight to what you're saying. And uh, they'll put a lot of credence into the bloodstain. Yeah, they will. Okay. There have been many that have been wrongly convicted, by the way, on just bloodstain analysis. Yeah, and now they have ways to prove that they're innocent. A lot more being... Uh, released, yeah, being well, falsely one accused. Is uh, where's Clifton, <laughs> Texas? Is that far away? Do you know? I don't remember. I don't know. Well, you know? there was Joel Bryan, a, a former high school principal. He was accused of killing his wife in 1985 in Cl- Clifton, Texas. Uh, another was a lawyer from Arizona. I don't remember his name, but he was accused of killing his stepdaughter's husband after a night of drinking. I saw oh, that. Oh, yeah, remember in that Arizona, one? yeah, yeah, yeah. The conviction He's, was overturned yeah. by the judge. Because the bloodstain analysis was incorrect and yep. made to fit. Isn't he free now, mm-hmm. but they're still going to pursue it eventually? He was um, let off, but with prejudice, which means that if they ever find more evidence, they can arrest, can him, arrest him But the guy killed himself. It, I, it's I very agree. plain. Uh-huh. It's like the one case that you know he actually killed himself, and they want to go after this, uh, you know, Innocent, guy. yeah. And there was literally no evidence outside Mm -hmm. the analysis. And the only fingerprints on the gun was the victims. Yep. So uh, a Brad Jennings conviction for murdering his wife. So that's the the guy. uh, No, I don't know what happened to the Joel Bryan in Clifton, Texas. Um, I'd be curious if he was uh, let go. And then a Brad Jennings conviction for murdering his wife was overturned because evidence emerged that she had killed herself. And then a state trooper was accused. David Cam, an Indiana state trooper, was indicted but acquitted after spending 13 years behind bars. They felt that the bloodstains on his T-shirt were high-velocity bloodstain from shooting his victim when they were actually transferred to his shirt when he tried to render aid. That's crazy. How how you can be convicted just to be there. Yeah. And you haven't done anything. Yeah. And it's easy to tell transfer versus high-velocity. So if you're ever on a jury... The blood stain pattern analysis is a tool. It is not evidence. It is a tool and an interpretation of what they think happened, but you cannot base your conviction on that only. And there are um, police departments, detectives, not everywhere, but don't do a good job in their due diligence, and and innocent people can go to jail. Yes, they absolutely can, especially if you get this idea that, you know, this person did it, your your brain will naturally interpret all evidence to support yeah, your conclusion. you will. That's yeah. just a, 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 that's science. So at Julie's trial, so she was arrested in 2000. It started February 2002. Bloodstain, bloodstain pattern analysis took center stage. Her T-shirt was stained with her own blood, but there was a tiny smear on her shirt's right uh, shoulder that was Joel's. There were two other small stains that were tested, but they couldn't be linked to Joel because they were so tiny. Like the above examples, it was the only evidence, and I use air quotes for that, prosecutors had to convict her. A tiny blood smear on her right shoulder that could have come from the intruder as transfer when she was struggling with him. With just that, there cannot. Don't even tell me they convicted her. I'm going to take the fifth on that. 
Oh, that's just crazy. So the blo- the prosecution had two bloodstained analysts that said there was no intruder. Well, how did they know that? Well, well yeah. They didn't do fingerprints. They right. didn't check anything. Right. They have literally nothing to there, support her story because they didn't do it because they thought she was guilty from the start. They could have done uh, DNA on the window, even though it was covered up. In 97. Yeah. yeah. I mean... Yeah, are you getting fussy? Yeah, getting getting a little fussy. Shake out the shoulders. (laughs) It's just sometimes, you know, these are people's lives, Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. You know, do your job. Not all of them do this kind of thing, but gosh. Yep. The... you know, One, I think a lot had to do with it because of her husband was a police officer. I do, too. And he, it added weight yeah. to their suspicions. Mm-hmm. And I think that you have to take any police officer that was involved in a divorce or, or was mm-hmm. there was anything that was contentious between the officer and the, you know, the accused, you need to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, and you need to do it like you would any witness. Yeah. Get a statement, get a people's statement, not just rely, oh, he's our... You know, yeah. our brother. Yeah. So we're yeah. going to take what he yeah. says. Yeah. Okay. One of the analysts was Ron Engel, Engelert, a retired police detective and also the former president of the International Association of Bloodstained Pattern Analysts, which I had no idea. Mm. But that would be a, an impressive background for the jurors. They, they would give weight to what he says. He performed a lengthy demonstration using fake blood to show the different kinds of blood spatter and how they are created. He also gave basic principles of bloodstain analysis that allowed the investigators to put the pieces of the puzzle together. He concluded that the crime scene had been staged and manipulated and that didn't support her claims of a struggle. A Dexter Barlett, a crime scene investigator at the Illinois State Police, next interpreted the evidence on Julie's t-shirt. He said that the bloodstain could not have been transferred, but instead it was consistent with her using a weapon to kill her son. He offered no proof using experiments, data, or even how he came to the the conclusion. The defense, of course, rebutted both of these men with their own expert, Paul Kish, a forensic consultant. He said that the blood rested on top of the fibers of her t-shirt, indicating a transfer Versus cast off from a weapon that would have penetrated the fibers. Was he? A, was her lawyer a public defender? Do you know? I don't know. I don't. I'm curious I how they de- so, how actually. they um, defended her. I mean, defended her wounds. Right. What they? Yeah. Know, I'm sure they pointed out. I mean, that's what got that doctor off. Remember, we did that in the um, historical uh, that the show Fugitive. Uh huh. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because he didn't have... He had wounds. I forgot his name. I did, too. McDonald? No, that was the No, he did do it. Um, Sam? Shepard. Yep. Sam Shepard, yeah. But it was too late because then he died. Yeah. After he was proven he was innocent. He weird, though. He was. Became a wrestler and married a Nazi. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Well, spending that much time in jail, I mean, that would Ooh. just ruin anybody. But, I mean, they have to explain her injuries. No, I guess not. That's why I wonder if her lawyer's a public defender. And then the only other evidence was from her ex-husband, who testified that she had considered an abortion when she realized she was pregnant with Joel at the so age of what? 17. Now, see, that right there. So, you know, I'm not for abortion. You know, I'm, right. I'm uh, pro-life. But that right there, I would have objected mm-hmm. all day long on that. Because that is, especially in the 90s, I don't know, like now people probably wouldn't think twice no. about it. But even back then... 
that was a big deal. And so you're pulling that up. Like to me, that would prejudice the jury. Yeah, it would. Like, like oh, oh, what a horrible person. Oh, she yep. wanted to kill her son before yep. she even had him. Of course she killed him So she's him doing later. it 10 years later, please. Mm-hmm. She, uh, and, <laughs> Crazy how And, and then on top think. of that, it wasn't even true. No, it, it wasn't, wasn't even true. true. She didn't want to do that at all. The jury was uh, selected in that small town. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, well. So neighbors described... She didn't, she didn't a have chance. a chance. No, yeah. she didn't have any chance Mm-mm. at all. Neighbors described her as behaving erratically and even coldly after the crime. And so my question is, oh, oh, so did that include when she howled, learning that her son was slaughtered in his bedroom? Is, is there that, a way is that cold? Yeah, is there a way you're supposed to act? Does that include her having oh. to be bear-hugged because she's so hysterical because she can't find her son? Please tell me, neighbors, where it was that she acted coldly. So this wow. is where she's in shock because she's too quiet. Crap of they didn't yeah, act right comes right. in. That makes me mad. Now, again, I think you can definitely take a look at the su- suspect, and if they have no affect at all, or if they're acting a little bit weird, that can be something to file in the back yeah. of your mind. But quite frankly, that is not evidence. But to make it evidence. It's just wrong. It's just it is crappy wrong. police work. And she wasn't cold. She was hysterical and broken down. And shock. One even said she never cried. Well, how do they know? They're not with her 24-7. Right. I'd like to know what's the proper way to act. Yeah. When you lose yeah. a child or they're murdered or anybody. Right. There was a, another case on, um, I think it was first degree, where they had the daughter of the man that was accused of killing his wife. And she actually blew her own head off. But he was accused of killing her, and he actually went to prison. And the uh, reason that they convicted him is he acted coldly and didn't have any emotion after her death. Well, from hearing the daughter describe her dad, he was a very um, like low-key, non-emotional guy. He was a very kind man, but he was also a businessman, and so he knew how to react under pressure, and he was very calm in crisis. That's how the guy in Arizona, the lawyer, mm-hmm. that's how he acted. Yep. And they criticized him for that. Yep. So uh, anyway, it just, that is not evidence. And so again, if you're on a jury, uh, don't use that as evidence. Now you can, again, take it into consideration, mm-hmm. but you got to weigh the evidence against it. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, you know, really irritates me and it shouldn't be the factor. The, ju- uh, the jury found her guilty and sentenced her to 65 years in prison. Wow. Mm-hmm. Is she still? Well, I'm not. Well, you, you'll tell me. So in 2004, yep, an Illinois state appellate court overturned her conviction because of a legal error. Good. Oh. Not because there was a lack of evidence, but but from a legal error, and then they ordered a new trial. Now there was more going on behind the scenes that even Julie wasn't aware of at first that would lead to the killer of her son. Really? But for now, she was granted a retrial, and that started in 2006. So the prosecution doubled down on the bloodstain pattern analysis, and this time, Engelert focused on a theory that he never mentioned in the first trial. He said that in examining her T-shirt, he saw a bloody handprint and suggested that Joel had tried to push his mother away as she was stabbing him to death leaving the print. But that's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Did anyone bring that up, the defense? On cross-examination, he did admit that he had never measured Joel's hands to verify his conclusions. Defense expert Kenneth Moses said there was nothing to indicate this at all, and there was no scientific basis for such claims. 
You know, when you get up there and lie like that, an officer, jur- juries wonder. Mm-hmm. And now, if you're going to lie, they now what to else? They throw out everything else. Yep, yep. The defense also pointed wow. out there was no way Julie could have self-inflicted her injuries. They also brought in a confession of the murder oh. from someone else, which we're going to get into. And what I believe changed the outcome of the second trial. So this time, Julie also took the stand, which can be very dangerous. Yeah, it can. But this was good for her. She took the stand. She told her story. She stated that she had, quote, absolutely not killed her son. And personally, I think she should have testified in the first trial. Um, In fact, one juror said, I needed her to tell me that story. But, you know, in the first trial, though, bringing it all back, she may not have been fit to to take the stand. But they would have seen that. That's they would have seen too. how devastated yeah, she that's was. That's true, too. Um, they, uh, the juror said, I looked at her for two weeks, stared in her eyes for two weeks. I wanted her to tell me that story. So the fact that she didn't testify in her first trial mm-hmm. should not have played any role in her conviction either. No, it shouldn't have. And the juror saying that. Yeah, it's a constitutional right. And if you, if you testify, any tiny little bit you say the prosecution's going to go after you. So that's why you have a right to remain silent. And you don't want them to do that. And by the way, if you ever get arrested for anything, whether you're innocent or guilty, just the only words you need to say out of your mouth is, I want a lawyer. Yeah. That's it. Whether they think you're guilty or not. Yes. You know, like, as we know how I talk, you know, when you get up on a stand, you get so nervous. One word you say wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. You could get convicted. One little detail one that you're detail. confused about. Yeah, yeah. In fact, one of the fascinating things that have been coming out on the True Crime Garage podcast, because I'm like halfway through like 600 of them. I hadn't watched one in a while. Uh, is they keep bringing up this fact that parents that are that have lost a child, they were saying, do not do a lie detector test. Why? Because they're always uh, inconclusive or show that you're lying. Because the whole thing behind the the, uh, lie detector tests are stress signals. And you're already stressed. Your child has been kidnapped or your your child has been killed. And so you're already in this heightened state of stress. And so statistically, the lie detection tests always come back as inconclusive or you're lying. But wouldn't you be stressed on any murder that you're... They're just saying do, parents just in particular, parents? Oh, in particular, that have lost their child, uh, either to murder or kidnapping, that it comes back inconclusive or that you lied. Because it's a stronger emotion, innocent. I imagine. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And I will not ever take a lie detector test, ever. I don't care if cops think I'm guilty or not. I will never take a lie detector test, and I will get a lawyer. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what you should say. Because too first. many innocent people go to jail. Yeah. And, and anything, the more the nervous, you know, when you're nervous, how you talk to people. Yeah. You start messing up. You say things. Yep. You, especially with police. Yep. And I then mean, we see too many people that have been convicted because the yeah. cops got in their head. They did it. And that was it. And they're innocent. Yeah. Uh, so they also, you know, I mean, again, you know, she testified. They point, really focused in on her injuries. In the second trial, she was declared not guilty July 26, 2006. When she heard the verdict, she cried out and collapsed to the floor. Fantastic. Now, Julie thought, quote, everything would be better post-trial. She considered going to law school, maybe finishing her doctoral degree. 
How long had she been in jail when the second trial? Well, she Do was convicted know? in 2003, and the second was two, 2006. So oh, she served only a few four years. years? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, she wanted to help others, and she thought <clears throat> that she would be strong enough to give back to others. But the trauma of her son's murder, the two trials, being in prison for killing her child, as well as the mental and physical abuse she endured in prison for being a child killer. Oh, yeah. Was too much. They don't like that. Yeah. So suspicion had not lifted after she was declared not guilty. Her ex-husband continued to think that she had killed Joel after the real killer confessed unknowingly, by the way, to the murder. She underwent extensive therapy. She had a service dog. She even remarried. Her new husband believed in her innocence so much that he even went to law school to help free her. Really? Yeah. But the marriage didn't last. She had a rough time finding employment because she was very upfront with what happened. And once they heard that, no one would hire her. And then even after she was formally exonerated in 2010, the Illinois Circuit Court exonerated her and said she was innocent. Because there's a difference, you know, between innocent and not guilty. That she had a rough time finding work. So she finally moved to Tennessee in 2011 to be where her parents were. But she still struggled to find work and build a new life. She didn't commit suicide, did she? No, she's still around. I don't know what she's doing. I was trying to find it more updated because the last was in 2011. That's horrific. Mm -hmm. It ruined your whole life. Mm -hmm. Because even if they exonerate you, they oh, well, technicality, Mm -hmm. she's still guilty. Mm -hmm. I know one thing. I wouldn't be up front and tell anybody anything. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I would not. But the only thing is, it's like, well, if they ever you know, search her name on the internet well, or anything, yeah. they're going to find out. Yep. But to me, I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to be very strategic with that information. I'm going to be a good worker. I'm going to be a kind person. I'm mm-hmm. going to be a valuable asset. And that way, if they find out, hopefully at that point, they'll know her by then mm-hmm. and know that she's not. And she can say, I've been exonerated. Her you whole know, life I did was not do yeah, this. ruined. That's just sad. Yeah. Because of sloppy police work. But for Julie, <clears throat> she wants to know, who killed my son? I want to know. So the answer would come from an unlikely source, a true crime writer from Texas who saw Julie's story on 2020, and she was moved by her proclamation of innocence. This author was finishing up a book on a serial killer and was corresponding with him for her, for her book. She brought up her doubts about Julie's conviction to the killer. To her astonishment, he asked in a letter, quote, was that murder you were talking about one that happened two days before the one I did in Springfield, Missouri? So maybe on the 13th. Isn't that crazy? And Joel was killed October 13th. The true crime author had, had not given him any details at all. She, he just mentioned, she just mentioned Julie. And, when you said true crime uh, author, I sort of remember that part, but yep. not the case itself. So that wow. started a series of events that would lead to a confession and the uncovering of one of the most brutal and hateful serial killers we've discussed so far on Outline of a Murder. Really? And it's also the only reason we're doing this serial killer because of the twist to the story. Because other than that, he doesn't impress me. Wow. All right. So any crazy? other thoughts before we go to part two? No, I'm anxious for part two. All right. Friend. All right. Yeah. Now. Oh, the... Smart. Yes. I'm having to do the other person. Yes. Be rude. And don't be a victim. Very good. Applause. It's just taking. No, no. No applause. No, because it's just taking 13 episodes. But anyway.
Outline of a Murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? <laughs> <laughs>